Well, it's great to see you all. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Ian. Last week, uh, you, you may know that we began a new series in the Old Testament book of Esther. You can watch that online. Um, I think on our YouTube channel and listen to the audio on our website. But today, as promised, we are getting into the narrative, having given a more general introduction uh, last week. If this were a game of chess, chapters one and two of the book of Esther are basically the author putting all the pieces on the board, ready for the game to start. Um, all the main characters are being introduced. And uh, in chapter three, we'll start to see the plot begin to develop. But in this first chapter, it is quite striking that we don't meet at all any of God's own people in chapter 1. We're, we're in a royal court in the middle of the Persian Empire. And to begin with, I think this is maybe the key that unlocks this for us. I think what the author's doing here in chapter 1 is he's describing for us the world within which the people of God live. That's what chapter 1 here is all about. And I think the author wants us to see two clear sides to this. On the one hand, this is an empire that is tremendously powerful. And yet, at the same time, it's completely ridiculous. That, that's what's going on here in chapter one. I don't know whether to call this a tragedy or a comedy. It seems to be a messy mingling of both of those things. It's powerful and yet faintly ridiculous. And this is the world in which the people who believe and know and trust in God live within. And as the story unfolds, I think the point that we're meant to be seeing is that as a result of this power and craziness, they are therefore extremely vulnerable as they live within this empire. I think this chapter has something to say about all the rising and falling empires that this world has seen. This is one of them. But what we see here is kind of applicable to all the different empires that we've seen in history. All of them, in a sense, have been powerful and yet ridiculous at the same time. So... Let's unpack the power side of it first, shall we? And then we'll have a look at the ridiculous side of it second. I want to unpack the power under three headings. And uh, the first is that this is a massive kingdom. We, we saw this a little bit last time, didn't we? First one, if you've got a Bible on, in front of you or on your phone, it'd be great for you to keep the page open because we'll refer to these verses as we go through. Verse 1 tells us, first of all, that this is a massive empire. It introduces us to the main man, King Xerxes, but he's defined by the size of his kingdom. It immediately calls to mind the huge size and scope of his empire. It was his grandfather on his mother's side, the Persian King Cyrus, who had established this empire in the middle of the 500s BC. Um, Xerxes became king 
in his 30s um, in, in 486 BC. And by this point, we're told here that his kingdom stretched from Kush, which is like northeast Africa, to India in the east. Massive empire. This was the biggest empire the world had seen, really, up to this point. I think it's hard for us to imagine in our modern day living in such an empire in these times with no travel by planes or well maybe that's not hard for us to imagine in covid times <laughs> um but you, you you know what i mean in, a, in an empire this size most people would walk maybe have a horse your whole life would pretty much be spent in the same village so even if you didn't like living in this empire, there's no escaping. You, you can't go somewhere else. They had no choice. There was nowhere to hide. And so this is the world that the people of God live in. And they're part of it, whether they like it or not. They can't emigrate. It is what it is. It's a massive empire and they're part of it. The second thing is that this is, we're, we're told, a mighty Empire. We're told in verse 2 that King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. This is a king who ruled. This, this citadel was started by his dad, King Darius, and King Xerxes finished it. And a citadel, you, you know what a citadel is, it, it's kind of like a raised castle within sort of walled area. There's something about this, you know, no, no king has ever built his castle in a valley, have they? The, the, a citadel is like an elevated, everyone is looking up to where the king rules the whole empire from his throne. The idea is that the subjects of this kingdom are meant to look up in wonder and awe. We know a little bit about King Xerxes from secular historians. And in the early part of his reign, this king had successfully quashed some rebellions in Egypt and in Babylon. This is the most powerful man in the world. Think about that for a moment. This is the guy who has the nuclear codes in his briefcase. So the scene being set here is of a secure kingdom with a strong and beautiful palace and the main man is enthroned there and reigning. And with that, King Xerxes throws a massive party. We will see as we go through the book of Esther that there's a lot of party, there's a lot of feasting. There's a lot of banquets in this book. The plot revolves around food and banquets and feasts. There are actually three different banquets in this chapter alone. The first one is significant because it's thrown for the most significant people in the empire. The author piles up the descriptions um, in verse 3 of the, the people who are invited to this uh, banquet. These are the people with the golden tickets. 
military leaders, nobles and officials, princes, representatives of all the provinces in the empire, they're all summoned. Everyone who matters in this empire is at this event. The point here is that this is a powerful king gathering his powerful generals. You don't mess with these people. They back up their decisions with might. So not only is there nowhere to hide, there's no way to win. <laughs> there's power here on display. I don't think this is an empire in which you would protest without being squashed. This is a mighty and ruthless machine. And this is the world in which the people of God live. I think the third thing under this powerful sort of side of things is that it's also a very impressive kingdom. This banquet, we're told in verse 4, lasts for uh, six incredible months. I, I feel pretty sure that they didn't just shut down government for six months while they all had a massive party. I think what's implied there is that maybe people came and went, but for six months, the king is showing off the splendor and glory and majesty and power of his kingdom. This is an empire that is all about being visually stunning. And so the king displays his vast wealth. We're then told that at the end of this dazzling six months display, the king then throws another party, this time for a week. And this time he invites we, what we might call all the common people to come to this great citadel. Everyone who lived there, verse 5, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The descriptions from verse 6 down to verse 8 are deliberately amazing. This party was set in some kind of pavilion in the garden of the palace. The furnishings are rich and colourful. Everything is silver and gold and precious stones. And even the glasses are not the cheap ones that you can buy in Ikea. In verse 7, it actually says that wine was served in golden goblets and every single one was different to all the others. Can you imagine that? The whole thing was designed to make people's eyes pop out with the wonder and glory of it all. This is five-star, luxurious and lavish. The king spares no, no expense filling his wine cellar and inviting, well, hiring hordes of waiters to serve the masses. And there's an interesting line in verse 8 where the king makes it clear to everyone who comes to this party that they could do whatever they like. Don't stand on ceremony. Don't wait to copy the king. Just be yourselves. Enjoy the party. 
This then is the kind of powerful empire in which the people of God live. Mighty, ma massive, mighty, and very impressive. So let, let's see something of the other side of the coin. As we think about this empire being slightly ridiculous. The first thing, three headings here as well. First thing I want to say under this ridiculous heading is that when we scratch a little under all, all this impressiveness, this is a demanding empire. Actually, none of this abundant generosity is free. There's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> That's what we say, isn't it? There's no such thing as a free party in the citadel of Susa. So we know uh, from secular history that in this very year, the third year of King Xerxes' reign, that the king held a great war council. And in yeah, we're, we're told in verse 3 that this is the third year of his reign. This is 483 BC. He's perhaps 35 years old. And his father, King Darius, had tried to invade Greece. And it had been unsuccessful. And he came home but died before he could try again. And it seems that Xerxes, his son, was determined to avenge his father and put this awful state of affairs right again. There's a, there's a famous Greek historian called Herodotus who records Xerxes speaking to the nobles who, ascend, who assembled for this amazing party. Let me read to you from Herodotus the speech of King Xerxes. This is what he says. For this cause I have now summoned you together that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont and lead my army to Greece that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted him to punish them. And I, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I have taken and burnt Athens. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear, and with a good will. And whoever, whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. So what seems to be going on here is that the king is showing off his vast wealth to gain support for a campaign. This is a man who's feeling successful and confident and wanting to expand the franchise. And the message is clear. This is an empire that offers great rewards to those who participate. The subtext is you can have all this too. You can have all this wealth and power and fun. You just need to sign up to the program.
None of this lavish generosity is really free, after all. It's actually designed to be seductive and alluring. There's the promise here of security and comfort and wealth in return for allegiance. One, one writer actually compares this to a massive protection racket. The Persians were pretty reasonable in allowing minorities to thrive and tribal groups to have their own identities so long as they swore loyalty to the Persian Empire. You send your gold and your soldiers and your women and you get the security of knowing that you're safe from threat. I wonder, can you see some parallels <laughs> with the way our modern world and maybe the way all powerful empires seem to operate? I wonder, first of all, whether there's a little bit of Xerxes in all of us. I think Xerxes speaks of the deep hunger in all of us for love and admiration and loyalty he, he was a king, so he could do things on a grander scale that most humans can ever do them on. But Xerxes looks like a kind of mini-god here, doesn't he? I, I think what the author is showing us is the, is the emptiness of all of that. King Xerxes is this massive caricature of our human craving for adulation, wanting to be the centre of attention and the things that we do and the promises we make on a smaller scale to be liked and to find security. Maybe there's a little bit of him in all of us. But secondly, I think there's something of the empire also, maybe in all of us too. This is a little peek behind the curtain to see that often the promises that look so amazing are actually also often empty. I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a simple thing, but we only need to think about the way adverts work. I think our own culture taps into some of our deepest insecurities. Adverts often look so appealing, but behind them all, they're basically insults, aren't they? You're too old. You're too young. You're too ugly, you're too busy, you're too dull, you're too poor. But our culture is saying through adverts, don't worry, we've got your back, we have the answer for you. Behind every product is an insult and the promise of a solution. <laughs> Here you can find happiness, beauty, fulfillment. And we get sucked into being consumers who, who sometimes make great sacrifices in order to get what the empire is offering us. But this empire is not just demanding, it also turns out to be dangerous. So the third, I said there were three banquets, we've seen two. The third one appears in verse 9. And this time it's a party thrown by the queen, who is called Vashti. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. By the end of the week, the king is drunk on wine and possibly also high on all the adulation. 
He's shown off the splendour and wealth of his kingdom. He has the power and the wealth. But now, fueled by drink, the conversation turns to sex. And the thought occurs to him to show off his wife. There's some evidence in Jewish literature that on this occasion the men were discussing with each other what makes a woman beautiful. And then it turns to who has the most attractive wife. And the king wants to show that not only is he the most powerful man on earth, that he has it all. And even his wife is the most beautiful. And so he orders his seven closest servants to go and fetch the queen from the women's banquet next door. Perhaps all seven of them had to go because they were intending to carry her in on some kind of platform. The author tells us that the king commanded her to come wearing her crown. Some commentators have speculated whether it was only her crown. Whatever his motive, the king wishes to flaunt his wife in front of a roaring group of drunken men. And instead of loving and protecting and respecting his wife, he uses her as an object to say something about him. This is from a long time ago, but it's not difficult to see how bang up to date it is, is it? I, th I think our society is very confused. On the one hand, we pride ourselves on our progress in empowering women, rightly so, and yet more and more cases of women being abused by powerful men seem to emerge every week. Pornography is freely available and increasingly violent. And it is sobering that power struggles and immorality are more of a reality in Christian marriages than we care to admit. One writer asks if our world is really valuing women or just deceiving them into a false sense of freedom, making them willing participants in a culture that objectifies and abuses them. But the main point here it's not about sex or gender. What the author is drawing our attention to is that this is the kind of mixed up world that God's people inhabit. And there is something slightly terrifying about absolute power being wielded by such a deeply flawed king, isn't it? This empire is mighty and massive and impressive. There's nowhere to hide. There seems to be no way to win. 
but it's also demanding and dangerous and sometimes randomly brutal. However, the more we read and reflect on this chapter, the more we sense that the author isn't praising this empire, he isn't writing this as a tribute. He's actually subtly poking fun at it. This chapter's written as a kind of satire. So I want to say thirdly that this is a comical empire. First of all, think about this. There's the obvious irony of a man who has boasted for six months of conquering the world, now feeling embarrassed that people in the crowd are tweeting Vashti said no. By the end of verse 12, he's beyond furious. And the point here is, the king, if he wanted, could bring his wife in by force in a box if he wanted to, or in chains for his friends to go up at. But that would defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? He, he needs her to come willingly. Not under coercion, but in this case, though he can command his generals, he is unable to bend her will to his twisted purpose. This, this is true of all abusive power, isn't it? Force never produces respect. Making someone do something isn't the same as them being willing to do it. And the king of the whole world here, he can smash things up at will if he wants to, but he still can't change a person's heart. But secondly, the, it's the massive overreaction that's hilarious. This domestic crisis is escalated into a state emergency. And though Xerxes is powerful, we, we begin to see that he's incapable of making a decision on his own. And so he calls his closest aides. We've already met his seven eunuchs. Now he summons his seven wise men. I don't know if he had teams of seven. They, they, they seem more like the seven dwarves, these guys. And we won't try and repeat their names here. But he calls his sages. And one of them has either pulled the short straw as the spokesman or is too stupid to stop and think. But in verse 16, this guy Mamukin basically argues that if, if their wives hear about this, the very fabric of the empire will be threatened. There'll be no end of disrespect and discord, is what he says. But then he proposes that they send a decree to every house in the kingdom which has the effect of publishing what's happened so that every wife in the kingdom will know about it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know where to start <laughs> with that, isn't it? First of all, I, I wonder whether there's a hint here that these advisors are just concerned about their own wives being sexually compliant if the queen can say no, my wife might say no. We need to stamp this out. Are they just being selfish? 
Second, to banish Vasti is basically giving her on a plate what she's just done anyway. I'm not coming. Okay, you're banished. Well, great. I wasn't coming anyway. Thirdly, think about this. There's also the fact that where power rules supreme, it seems like the solution to every problem is to pass a new law. We'll just pass a law. We'll pass another law. I think this is how the might of this world always expresses itself. And laws are important. We, we know that laws are important, but they can't change people's hearts. Fourthly, how on earth do you police a decree like this? It, it raises the ludicrous image of a whole group of domestic male authority police knocking on every door in the kingdom with clipboards asking if the man is truly the head of the house. Just fill out this form, sir, and sign here, please. How, how, how on earth do you police such a decree? And running all the way through this, we've said it already, is the obvious truth. Surely, we know this. Respect has to be earned. You can't legislate and tell people to respect you or anything or anyone. It is also very striking that this empire is very tolerant until you stand up to it like Vashti did. And the message is clear. You can have it all if you play by the rules, but you'll be crushed if you dare to challenge. That, that, that's how abusers operate, but that's how powerful kingdoms operate. So the point is that this whole incident introduces us to powerful men in high places, and yet it also pokes fun at their irrational fears and their stupidity. I said earlier, it's hard to know if this is a comedy or a tragedy, but this magnificent empire seems brilliantly capable of shooting itself right in the foot. The king's court is bureaucratic and legally pedantic, and yet at the same time, it is a drunken, reckless mess. The king is powerful but unpredictable. He makes rash decisions on a whim. And the other people in his life don't exist as worthy objects of his care and love. But they're just pawns in a game that he's playing. The whole thing is fearsome. And yet at the same time somehow fragile. It's dangerous but completely absurd. In a kingdom like this, with a king like this, the point is that God's people who live here are vulnerable. But I think in the end, the author is, is kind of smiling because he seems to know that in the end, the emperor has no clothes. His powerful empire is one that will ultimately collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. One thing 
that really ramps up the irony of this chapter is that we know from history that King Xerxes failed in his military campaign in Greece, just like his dad had done before him. And he came home defeated and depressed and a lot poorer. And I wonder whether the original readers of this chapter, when they're reading this chapter, they already know what Xerxes was planning and what the result of it had been. And they know that all this bravado and this show of strength actually came to nothing shortly afterwards. Friends, I'm not trying to criticise any particular empire, but there's something here about evil always has a knack of overreaching itself. And the empires that we see as powerful carry within them the seeds of vulnerability and comedy and irrationality. We're nearly done. But as as the author sets the scene for us here in chapter one, he acknowledges the power and magnificence of this great empire. But he's subtly mocking its weakness too. Esther chapter one shines a light on the empires of every human age. And even, even on the kind of world we live in, And it all hints, I think, deep down that that, that we know that there has to be a better, more lasting empire than this. I I think this story is an invitation for us to see beyond the glitz and the power of this world This is a king who was showing off his splendour, but what an irony it is that God, who should rightly be the centre of our attention, gives us a book in the Bible that doesn't even mention his name. One king is desperately showing off. Our great God gives us a book that doesn't even mention him. Even though this chapter says nothing about God at all, it's hinting at what we all long for deep down. Surely, surely there's a better kingdom than this that's not all brash, destructive, empty promises. Friends, surely only a king with a perfect character is entitled and worthy to wield absolute power. And only a king who uses his power to serve others rather than satisfying his own personal lusts is truly worthy of our respect and devotion. Esther, I think, points us to another kingdom that is not brittle, or self-defeating and it points us to another magnificent king his name is clearly not Xerxes his name is Jesus 
Xerxes lost the plot when he didn't get his own way. Jesus is a king who was willingly crucified in shame in the place of his rebellious subjects because of his love for them. Jesus is a king who has infinite power and who is yet infinitely humble rather than irritable. And he showed off his glory not by having a party in which he shows off his vast wealth and splendor. He, sh- he reveals his glory by giving everything away. He's more glorious precisely because he's unselfish and humble rather than proud and arrogant. Jesus is a king who is not hungrily grasping for power, but gladly serving those he loves. Jesus is a king who is freely generous, but never exploitative. He isn't insecure or showing off or angling for something that he doesn't already have. He's not at the mercy of his own appetites or using other people to satisfy some need in him. And Jesus is also a king who doesn't just align himself with the rich and powerful, but one whose loving eye is on the sinner, the small, the weak, the ones that this world thinks are nobodies. I think Esther chapter 1 is asking us a big question. And the question is this. Which kingdom are you giving your loyalty and allegiance to? Is it the powerful and yet ridiculous kingdoms of this world? Or the beautiful, wholesome and lasting kingdom of King Jesus, God calls every one of us to turn from ourselves and to his glorious son, the true king, Jesus, in faith and in obedience. We're going to have a few cliffhangers in this story, so come back next week for chapter two. I want to close, we we don't often do this, rather than praying as we close, we'll pray at the end. I want to close by reading from another part of the Bible that I think seems to sum all of this up. So maybe our musicians can come up while we do this, but um, turn with me to Psalm 2. It's in, in the Old Testament, as you'll know, Psalm 2. This psalm is quoted in the New Testament by writers there because this this old ancient psalm is really comparing two kingdoms. The powerful kingdoms of this world with the kingdoms of Jesus. God's promised king. Let me read to you 
from Psalm 2. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.